Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Jeff Bailey, the chairman and CEO of UFP Technologies. UFP is a $480 million market cap company that specializes in designing foams, films, and plastic materials for the medical, automotive, consumer, and aerospace markets in the U.S. Jeff joined the company in 1988 and became CEO in 1995. Jeff has been instrumental in helping turn UFP into the company it is today. After years of somewhat limited growth, UFP made its largest acquisition ever in 2018 of a company called Dielectrics, and that deal has transformed the company's margin profile and growth trajectory. And the big changes that have occurred since the deal have not gone unnoticed by the stock market. Accordingly, I thought it would be really instructive to hear from Jeff about the process that led to UFP's recent success. In this enlightening discussion, we will cover the genesis of the Dielectrics deal and the strategy surrounding moving into medical end markets, Jeff's thoughts on key elements that have allowed the stock to appreciate to a level 20 times its value when Jeff became CEO, the benefit of being patient and having a willingness to suffer as a CEO, and areas in which UFP still has a long runway to get better. Before we start, just one disclosure to note, Cove Street owns UFPT stock. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with UFP chairman and CEO, Jeff Bailey. As always, we will start this discussion at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Let's start with the Dielectrics deal in 2018. It was your first big deal with an acquisition price around $80 million. Going all the way back to the early 2000s, I can't find a deal that costs more than $10 million. With the benefit of hindsight, our sense is that this deal has really helped change the trajectory of the company. But you took a huge swing relative to past deals and the market cap of the company. So the big question is, what did you see in Dielectrics that justified such a large bet? Well, thanks, Ben. Um, so Dielectrics was an exact match for what we were looking for. We had gotten into the RF welding business actually kind of by accident because of an innovation we had done for a customer to solve one of their problems. But it had grown into a multi-million dollar business, but we were not best in class in it by any means. And there was a company only two hours from us called Dielectrics that was the very best. They used to manufacture the equipment themselves, both RF and impulse welding and sell it. When problems were very difficult, they ended up on their desk and they started making some medical parts for people and realized that that was a better business model for them. So they stopped making equipment for others, got into the business, but they were only one plant. 
and we shared a lot of customers. In fact, we ship parts to dielectrics that they finished the device for negative pressure wound therapy. So they were the next step in the value chain. They were better at RF welding, could teach us for the balance of our business. They're a fantastic cultural fit. We felt we had negotiated a fair deal. And, and given their proximity and cultural fit, we thought it'd be a relatively easy integration. So with all those factors, they checked all the boxes and we were sort of all systems go on this deal. It sounds like this is an asset that you were thinking about and kind of been thinking about chasing for a while. How do you approach you know, the management team or the owners there in a way that you know, allows you to move forward and get a, get a deal done. I'm always interested in, in when you've identified something, like what is, yeah. <laughs> what is the approach of how, you, how to get them to the table? So that's a fantastic question. So basically we dialed the phone a whole bunch of times and don't get anywhere. And then in this case, we put a third party on it. So we work with a third party that sources deals for us. That's kind of just a tenacious pit bull about getting us appointments. And so they work with about a list of 25 at a time. And so we gave us this one and it took them a long time to get us a date, but when they did, it went quickly. So uh, we used our third party to, to ultimately get in the door, although we gave them the name. And given the size of the bet, I mean, I can imagine there was a fair amount of consternation within the boardroom regarding, you know, it sounds like there was an easy integration. It was a good match, but you know, it was a pretty large swing. So how did, how much consternation and, and questioning of you was there within the boardroom regarding this size of a deal? Well, our management team got unified behind this opportunity pretty quickly. So when we brought it to the, the board with all these different boxes checked, I mean, the board was was very diligent pushing back and how you're going to do this. And, you know, this isn't a business that you're experts in, et cetera, et cetera. But they quickly got comfortable too. Um, and so I would say not as much consternation as you'd think, given that they had checked so many different boxes. That makes sense. And we've seen in a lot of instances that companies that had kind of legacy industry industry exposure and you know wanted to be in better margins, higher growth businesses, you know it's it's often really expensive to get into to businesses like that um, from a multiples basis, and you know a lot of companies have not been that successful because they were you know so focused on reducing exposure to industry X that they either overpaid or didn't quite understand exactly what they were getting into in, in industry wide. So you've gone from like a very kind of like automotive focused company towards like heavily investing in medical and you've done it without the wheels falling off. How have you been able to you know, transition in, at your end markets and in, in the way that you have? Um, well, we did it over time and it's kind of core to our strategy. So if you, if you dial back the clock, we were a very innovative company that came up with a lot of cool stuff that we were not able to hang on to. And so one sort of famous example is when, when Crosslink Foams were first developed, you know, these people came to us and, and we innovated and developed the very first running shoe insoles ever done. And so in the early days, we made all of them and, and shipped them all over the world. And but that business moved to China. And our customers sort of said to us, hey, you know, you have the best materials in the world and therefore your insole lasts longer, but that doesn't really help us because if the insole wears out, the, our customer buys a new pair of shoes. And by the way, your perfect tolerances, although they're nice, they don't help us either because we just kind of step on it. So we started asking ourselves, and this is where our strategy kind of formed. We talked about this market to our sweet spot. Who values what we do? You know, which markets are the best fit where we add the most value and therefore can command the highest margin? So we picked a few. We picked automotive. We picked medical, picked aerospace and defense. And our logic was these were not going to go offshore. You know, the automotive stays, the military stays, and the medical tends to stay. So we focused on these three. 
we quickly grew in automotive because one of these companies identified us as a super innovative company. And they actually assigned a member of their company to grow our business. They wanted to do business with us. So we had somebody whose job it was to integrate us into their business. And one of our big programs we did was um, the Mercedes-Benz SUV door panels. And that was a great program for us. And it launched our automotive sales. And we had some innovations around moonroof sunshades where with new materials, we changed from like 23 different parts, including ball bearings and clips to like two parts. And it was like a breakthrough. And so we had a few of these things in automotive. But with automotive, the programs were shorter, you know, four to seven years, and there was immediate price pressure. And so with medical, we found the programs were longer and they were stickier after they go through the qualifications. And so medical seemed like a better fit. So we sort of de-emphasized our resources and capital away from automotive and more towards medical. Our, our acquisition focus became medical. And so the business sort of evolved and transitioned into medical. It wasn't abrupt. We didn't go out and, and take the first investment banking book with a very high multiple and say, we got to buy this. We were disciplined and diligent about finding good fits and trying to pay a fair price and not to overpay. And if you go back to when you initially signed that deal, I mean, did you did you consider this kind of the jumping off point for medical and that, that it would potentially change your trajectory as a company and, and also the valuation? Or, you know, was that not as clear, you know, in hindsight? No, we were executing our plan and, um, you know, we were already marching towards more and more medical. We are, the company was well over 50% medical by the time we bought these guys and our previous acquisitions had all been medical focused for one reason or another, either to get a material we were lacking. Um, you know, there was one material I can walk you through the story. So we, we saw ourselves as materials neutral. So if you come to us, we're not going to slam you into one material. We offer them all and we pick the partner who's best. And so there was one material we were lacking. It was a special reticulated urethane and they had very tight distribution and they would not expand it. So there was about 10 or 12 people that could get it and nobody else. So we went and interviewed these guys, probably five of them, or six of them. The ones we thought that were the good guys, the good cultural fit, not everybody is. We ultimately bought one. And then over the next um, three or four years, we bought four more. And we went from not having any access to the material to being the largest user in North America. So when we become strategically focused on something, you know, we're locked in. We know it's the right thing to do. So, you know, our strategy in this space had already been evolving. This was a medical grade of foam as well. And so, you know, I'm aware that, that medical companies trade for higher multiples and there's a reason, you know, the business takes longer to win and it's sticky once you do win it. So we knew as the business continued to evolve that we would be able to create more value for our shareholders, but we were executing a plan that we had started long before. And in what ways has that deal, the dielectrics deal, informed your strategy regarding subsequent our M&A deals? I mean, have you have you looked for similar situations or um, where there was such a logical fit? Like, how else have you how, how is that? How have your views evolved over time since the, since that deal? Um, it has changed our opinion because before we bought some companies that were you know making us more valuable for one reason or another, new material, new capability. Um, but sometimes we were buying underperforming businesses that we thought we could fix. There were synergies, you know, material purchasing power and strip costs out. But <clears throat> this time we we're very deliberately trying to be more valuable to our customers. And I think that it shaped our strategy. Now our whole acquisition strategy, the vetting point is, are we more valuable to our customers after we do this deal? Are we a better company? Um, and so that guides us. It doesn't mean if we find an underperforming asset that we can fold into an existing plant and have an instant uh, synergies that we wouldn't do it, but that's not the focus of our search. And you've talked about the M and A strategy overall a little bit, and talking about 
kind of vertically integrating and getting asked, you know, getting access to certain materials. So as you think about future MA, is it where do you start to think about adding another leg to the stool versus just getting better and 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 getting kind of going deeper in the products you already have so that you can be more valuable to those customers? One of our big focuses now is again customer driven. And for a number of years, our customers have been asking this. They're saying that, hey, when our products reach end of life cycle, we're forced to, to cut costs and to take them to a low-cost country. And you lose the business and we have to requalify somebody. We go through all the risk. And then if you would be willing to be in a low-cost country, you would save all that business and you would have access to new programs with us. And so we, you know, we've been a US-based company for a long time, but we, we started an acquisition search looking where we ship products. So we ship product to Ireland, we're looking at Ireland. We ship product to the DR and lots of it. We've been looking in the DR. Um, we ship product to Mexico and, and many of our customers are in Mexico. So we were not successful in finding a deal in Mexico. So we decided to do a greenfield startup um, because we had committed to three separate customers on three separate programs that we would be there. So we've recently announced this. We'll be making parts in Mexico by April of next year. And probably within a year of that time, all three programs will be launched. So we are going to take this step into low-cost country and we're going to execute on our, our vision of being able to deliver uh, value to our customers at all stages of their life cycle. Um, so we'll still develop, we'll still do U.S. manufacturing for early stages, and then we'll have this, this other leg of the stool. And how did you assess the greenfield opportunity versus M&A in terms of returns? I mean, were there, was that it, when you say you couldn't find a deal in Mexico, was it about the return profile or you just couldn't find anything? I'm interested, I'm always interested in the yeah. buy versus build uh, right. calculus. Yeah, and so I'm 100% a buy guy. I mean, I have done a handful of greenfield startups. I think it's doing it the hard way. Um, but if you have to pay a, a 10 plus million dollar premium for a business when your startup costs are only a couple million, it's just not worth, you know, we'll, we'll save a lot of money by doing it on our own and we'll do it quickly. And, and we de-risked it um, by, we've hired a guy who's excellent at this and who's done it before. So obviously a startup comes with risk. Obviously a startup in a new country comes with even more risk. You know, we've used a third party in Mexico um, that, that does a lot of the work for us that, you know, sources the building and signs the lease and finds the employees, you know, kind of a maquilador kind of startup. So we've taken a lot of steps to de-risk it. Um, we will have to endure some losses during the startup phase, but it's, it's not as bad as paying a 10 to $20 million premium for not a great business. We talk a lot internally about companies, quote unquote, growing up as they move from nano cap into micro cap and then even, you know, into large cap land. Where do you think this company has grown up operationally in which in, in what areas had you think it's grown up operationally over the last call it five or 10 years? And where is, do you think there's still room to improve over time? Um, so some of the big strides we've taken and sort of I'll give credit to our board who's pushed us to expand our, our, our talent and, and to number one, to have a better succession planning, but also to be able to grow the company. So we brought in two executives, both of whom were elected officers this past June. Um, one, Steve Carden was the former president of Viant Medical before that senior VP of ops invention. Um, and he actually came to us through a director referral as well. Um, so he's run lots and lots of plants all over the world. And he's in fact started plants in Mexico. And so he's brought to us a discipline around quality compliance, program management that, that's helped us grow up as a company. And the second guy was an ITW executive, again, professionally trained at vetting new opportunities and, and 
and finding synergies and they're both trained in lean. And so the company's come a long way under these guys. And I, to answer your question about the next step, I think it would be around quality and compliance. And so, I, you know, these guys have pushed us towards, we need a super high level director of quality and compliance trained in med tech uh, that can help us navigate through these, you know, different countries and, and, and more and more sophisticated devices. So we'll continue to grow. And I think we'll continue to grow by adding talent that knows more than we do in their respective discipline. You mentioned quality and compliance. And when I think of that, I think medical, just there, there's all these regulations around it and patient health is important. And so there's just a lot of, there's a lot of requirements from your customers. Um, w- would you say that as you've gotten more into medical, you've had to kind of up your game as a, as a company to be just really precise or, you know, was that part of the culture even beforehand? Well, we've, we've always had the, the various certifications to, to, perform what we do in medical. And in fact, with dielectrics, they were better than we were. So they make parts that go into the body. They develop quality systems and quality test equipment where we have a hundred percent testing of every single device. Um, but the, the more, the more we grow up as a company, the more this function is more and more critical. Um, and so, you know, I think we're good. We want to be great. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, Coast Street rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. Tegas changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tegas then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts a transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. I'm always interested in how companies try to evolve with their customers and, um, you know, how you create internally a dynamic organization that's not just like focused on the day-to-day, but actually taking time to look where the puck is going. So how do you think about that? How do you create an organization that, you know, is trying to anticipate to some degree where your customers are going so that when they do have an order or something like that, you can be ready to, to jump on it? You know, we changed our structure over time with this in mind, where we sort of go to market by market segment now. And so the, the people that are calling on customers are very knowledgeable about their business and they're experts in that field, as opposed to experts in what we do for a living. Whereas the guys in the plants are more experts in the materials and the designs and stuff like that. So they're having high level conversations and they're asking them all the time, hey, what can we do to be more valuable to, to you? What can we do to grow our business with you? And, you know, they're very willing to tell you exactly what they want you to do, you know, what locations they want you to be, what technologies you want. You know, if you, if you start doing this, you know, the vendors we have in this are not doing a good job. And so they'll direct us. And, and so we will adopt a new technology for an existing customer. Um, we won't do a new technology for a new customer. Um, but if, a, if an existing customer says, hey, will you get into this? This is be helpful. We will investigate, learn it and do it. Uh, a question I, I, you know, neglected to ask you. What, what's interesting, I think you just said, those two execs that you hired both came from much larger companies. Hmm. How have you been able to attract, um, you know, kind of people who worked at larger companies 
to work at UFP and what is the what is the attraction to them um, as you know as they start at a smaller company? Yeah, good question. So we had to kind of break our own rules around compensation and pay what it took. We had to be, you know, we were tired of getting underwhelmed by trying to stuff somebody into our compensation system. So we're like, this is the person we want. What does it take to, to attract them? Um, and then the promise is, is we, we, we explain the vision. Here's where we're trying to go. Here's how you fit in. And frankly, if we don't succeed in acquisitions, and if we didn't do some of the things that we said we do, I'm not sure we could have kept these executives. Um, and so we are delivering, they see the vision, they, they see where they fit in, they see they're part of the, the organization and we move them along quickly. You know, if you, if you come into our organization and succeed, you get more responsibility very quickly. And has your view of how to compensate people changed over time in terms of what metrics? I mean, I, I I'm always um, a fan of comp- you know, companies that focus on some form of customer success in addition to returns on capital and maybe cash flows. Mm. How, how have your views on, on compensating people to, to, to incentivize exactly what you want as a, as a CEO? How, how has that changed over time? Uh, I would say it's changed a lot. I mean, I used to be kind of a low fixed, you know, market to below fixed wages and, and way above market variable. So, you know, if you came in and were successful, you were going to be able to double your salary in, in bonus. And what had to happen over time is to steal people away you know, they already had a mortgage and, and whatever responsibilities you weren't going to, they weren't going to be able to go backwards. So you had to, you had to pony up on the fixed side and, and you could ease up on the variable. Um, but so we had to basically pay a certain market wage to get these guys in. And so my, my incentive now for all my guys has drifted more and more to stock. So that's if, if the whole company succeeds, you succeed. And we have invest over a number of years. So it's got a golden handcuffs element to it. And so, you know, their variable comp for them is, is primarily based on them achieving their goals and succeeding in their slice of the pie, but their ability to get rich relates to if the stock goes up. And, and I like that model. And we've pushed the stock down further and further and further. And every year, you know, it goes down more, deeper into the organization. And is, is one of the pitches to a, you know, someone who works a larger organization is that yeah, you may not have all of these crazy resources that you had at this other organization, but you have the opportunity to be more entrepreneurial. How is that one of your pitches? And, and how does that play out internally if, if it is? Yeah, I mean, we are by nature an entrepreneurial company and I am by nature a delegator. So we say, this is your slice of the pie. And as long as you're delivering the numbers and following our plan, you, you can do it as you see fit. So they really, they're like running their own business for their piece of the pie. And I think people really like it. Um, you know, they have a lot of latitude, again, staying within our culture um, to do what they want to do. And, and if, if that's what excites you, they thrive in our environment. Um, so, you know, it's the promise of, of being more involved and touching more things and being able to see instantly the value of your decisions. Um, you know, your business is going to improve or not based on the decisions you make. And you're going to get constant iterative feedback versus in a bigger company, maybe not so much. Going back to M&A for a second, because uh, there was a question I neglected to ask you there as well, is um, so you mentioned that to some degree you have moved away from looking for fixer uppers and looking for businesses that that can you that, that can that, that you don't necessarily have to fix up. What would it take for you to or what does it take these days for you to think about buying something that's underperforming 
uh, for a 50 cent dollar versus, you know, buying a good business for 90 cents on the dollar? Like what, what, what are the variables that, that would go into a decision like that? I mean, if it's something that's already core to our business that we can do with our eyes closed and we can share best practices and get in there and, and fix it immediately, we would do it. So if you're a business similar to ours, that's smaller, that, that you know, has lost their way, but if it's a new uh, technology, and that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to add more capabilities, there's no fixer-uppers. We're looking for the best of the best. And I'm interested, you've done a number of deals. I'm interested in, in the cultural aspect of that. How, how do you deal with a fixer-upper that, and would you even deal with a, a fixer-upper that you felt like the culture wasn't right in addition to maybe some operational issues? Yeah, so if the culture is not a match, it's it's done. Like that, that's our number one screen. And, you know, um, we assess it pretty early on, mostly from the CEO or herself, you know. If we don't think you have a similar view of the world and how you treat customers and the environment and people and your ethics, you know, we just pass, hard pass quickly. So we vet deals based on culture all the time. And if you could define the UFP culture, I know it's a tough question sometimes, and but I'd love to hear what that is and if that's evolved at all over your tenure. Um, I don't think that's, well, it maybe has evolved a little. So I think our culture is the highest possible ethics, you know, taking the high road in every single instance, you know, honest people, we treat our suppliers with respect. We're not the ones that beat our suppliers into submission. We partner with them. We cherish them. We need them to survive. Uh, we treat our company, excuse me, our customers very well. And our employees, we, we try to make it a fun place to work. I mean, the HR departments, you know, their assignment is to attract, engage, motivate, develop great people. And so, you know, that's what they're all about. And so um, people know that we want it to be a fun place to work. We make hard, we work hard to make it a fun place to work. And so, you know, I think that's why over time we've had people stay a long time, why we have good tenure, et cetera. The, the thing that's evolved a little is as we've grown up as a company is it's been a little bit more of a, uh, probably a performance or results driven culture. Um, and, and I think that's kind of a natural evolution. You know, we still want to be a great place to work, but we are a results driven company. Um, and so if you can put the numbers up within our culture, you, know, you have a lot of latitude to, to, to do what you want to do. But if you're unable to do that, you know, we're going to send somebody in to help you. And if that doesn't work, we're going to have to put somebody else in your chair. I want to move to corporate governance for uh, a moment because uh, you happen to be the chairman and CEO of that of this company, and it's always as an investor a question mark about you know do you have the proper governance structures when when you do have the combined chairman and CEO role. I'm interested, um, you know, given that you 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 live in both roles, you know, what do you think? How do you think UFPT shareholders benefit from you being in both roles? I mean, I know they benefit and I can prove they benefit, but the, you know, I, I think that you have tremendous clarity when you combine the roles and, and when you don't, there can be ambiguity. And, and if you don't have a unified strategy and you don't, if you don't present strategies that are achievable and executable, um, you don't have that unity of purpose. And so um, I was CEO for 12 years under a separate chairman. During the 12 years, the, the stock sort of tripled. It went from one and five eights or maybe closer to two to a little over five. And then we switched, we combined the roles. And then over the next 15 years, the stock went up by 12X. And it was almost an immediate 
like breath of fresh air when it all came together. So I know for our particular shareholders and our particular company, it was a significant benefit. Um, I think that the reason it works for us is because we have a strong lead independent director. Um, and that lead independent director meets with the directors independent of me every single meeting. You know, they talk about, you know, do we have the right CEO? Do we have the right strategy? Are we talking about the right things in the meeting? Does everybody have top, top, or is everybody getting their topics addressed? And then the other, you know, complaint people have is around compensation. If the board compensates the CEO and you, you know, run the board, are you your own governance on that? And so we, like most companies, have an independent comp committee. The board does not set compensation, only those three people. Uh, they don't ask for a vote from the board ever. So they use outside advisors. Um, so the classic reasons why the governance might be light by combining them, we have addressed. Um, you know, we have a strong board and we have lively debate on lots of topics. So, you know, I think our board functions at a high level. So I think that our shareholders are the beneficiary. You know, if you told me tomorrow we're going to separate the roles, you know, um, I'm not going to go home. You know, I, I would do it. But I, I, I've lived it before and it didn't work as well. And I would try to sell my case about why it's better the way it is. And if they separate it, and maybe someday they will, I would just have to really get in sync with the lead director that, you know, we're not going to try to come up with a compromise strategy that has a little of everybody's idea about which way we should be going. And I don't want to leave every meeting with a new investigation because somebody thinks we should get into injection molded paint cans and the the, the chairman out of respect for him says, listen, Jeff, at least put a committee on it. It may not be a bad idea. Like you can go off in too many directions. And so I think we're unified. I think the management team presents usually three different options to the board and they vet and, and you know, we have one that we like the best and they say what's bad about it, what's good about it. They push back and forth, but we leave with an executable plan and, um, and it works. So I think for our shareholders, it was a clear benefit. Um, maybe we would have done just as well if it was the other way. I don't really know. Um, I think both are, are very viable. I, I have no objection to the other one. I just think for us, it worked. In the beginning of that, you mentioned clarity of vision, which um, it's interesting to me because you're probably the third or fourth pe person on, who've been on the show who have said those words specifically. So for someone who would say, think that that sounds a lot like corporate jargon, you know, what I'm interested in, what is the opposite of clarity of vision and have you like when you when mm. when what do you think when you say that you have clarity of vision what would if you didn't have that what would it look like i just love some examples because it just you know it, it just seems like so many of the companies we've talked to have that as like one of their core mm. values yeah you know it's kind of almost like politics you know politics is all different kinds of compromise and you end up with a solution that's not really great for anybody but it's good enough and you take a mini step forward and so, like, if you try to run a company by a committee, um, you get a big watered-down compromise. And so, you know, the board plays a vital role, you know, in, in governance. They play a vital role in cho uh, choosing the right CEO, but then they play a vital role in supporting the CEO. You know, if he's going too slow, they say, get going. If he's going too fast, they say, take it easy. If he has a plan that's got too much risk, you know, so they, they have a vital role. But in my opinion, um, it is different than the management team's role. And so when you have the chairman and CEO, same person, you know, whatever plan the board comes up with, it's automatic unity that, that just runs through the company quickly. And so if you have kind of a rogue director that, that is not reined in by the chairman or a lead director to say, okay, we've heard your idea, but the board has voted and we decided to go south, not west. And, you know, so now let's go um, versus, well, at least send a committee west and see what happens. It just dilutes the effort. 
So um, I like to spend time coming up with the right strategy, being very careful. And once you've decided, you know, go and go quickly. And so the board's very vital in that slow vetting of what's the right thing to do. But after that, we want to step on the gas. Um, so, I mean, it was kind of a, a business school case study on this, on like the worst car ever made. And it was like, it was done by committee instead of one person's vision, you know, this, and it just came out sort of blah. And so um, I think the board's role is in making the strategy better, not creating the strategy and pointing out pitfalls. Um, and like I said, if the management team's going too slow, you say, giddy up. And if they're going too fast, you say, hey, slow down. Um, and, and it's important, you know, it's almost like a parental role. Like, you know, you got to keep everybody in check. Um, and, and they, you know, they have metrics to see if it's working. They, they report in on the strategic goals every meeting. They have a dashboard of, you know, red, green, you know, so they, they have a good sense of what, what's happening. If what we said we were going to do, we're actually doing. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I feel strongly on this topic, but I, I know there's more than one way to do it. You talked about how, when a decision gets made, it, you're able to just take it through the organization without a lot of stops or or people holding it back. I'm interested as this company's gotten larger, have you had to fight against you know it becoming more corporate in a way of like more processes, and more procedures, and everybody's got to. And it's, it sounds like you know you've been able to kind of continue to make uh, entrepreneurial decisions quickly, but are there any areas where you've had to kind of fight against it just becoming too structured? Yeah. I mean, we live it every day. So like if, if you want to up your game and let's just say program management, which we do. So you bring in professional program managers and they, they lay out a process for how things are going to get done. So you have the people doing the work who already have a pile this high on their desk. And, and the new hire that we spent money on didn't come and take a third of the pile away. He made the pile bigger, you know, so you're, you're kind of, as you're adding structure and discipline, you're adding work uh, to the detriment of those people. And so, you know, it's a painful process and, and you have to make sure that the, the new guys aren't just dragging everybody into a meeting. or not making good, good parts on time. And you have to make sure that the guys that are doing it are open-minded to a better way. And so it's a constant balancing act. Um, and so, yeah, you can't give up on either. You can't give up on, on putting in the new systems to make you a better company and you can't lose the good people because they get exasperated because you're asking them to do stuff beyond what they were already doing. Um, so, and, and structurally, you know, we kind of go back and forth. You, you go more decentralized until you feel like you're losing the value. Then you go more central. You kind of move back and forth. Um, we had an officer before who was kind of in charge of sharing best practices and operational excellence and, we went away from it. And now we have two leaders, one of the medical and one of advanced components, and they, they do it on their own now. Um, and so maybe over time, we'll feel like we're not sharing enough best practices and, and change again. But um, structurally, we have flexibility, but with our, our vision, we do not. And with our values, we do not. So you, um, you've been CEO for a, a fairly long time, more than 25 years. Mm. I think continuity can be really beneficial. But having someone who's been CEO that long, you know, can kind of cast a big shadow over the organization. So I'm interested in how you've um, tried to empower people who work for you um, to, you know, to, to take initiative and to, you know, as, as you think about succession planning, how do you, um, you know, inspire people to, to stay around and, 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 and in this, under the heading that maybe one day they could be the CEO? Mm. Yeah, so we have some very talented guys, each of which would be considered 
um, to be the next CEO. We have one that's kind of um, probably jumped ahead of the, the pack recently, he was just named president of our medical group. So he kind of runs two thirds of our business. Um, I think the reason that we're able to keep him around is because he hopes someday he will get the job. And if he knew he wouldn't, I think he would 100% be working with somebody else. So our board's big on succession planning. He's been identified as a potential candidate. There are others that would like to be considered. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty good at delegating and, and, and pretty good at letting others do things. Um, so, I, you know, I'm more of an advisor, coach, and setter of, of strategy and placer of large bets, meaning acquisitions are huge capital spends. And the other guys, they run the business. You know. So you talked a little bit about the performance of the stock. I mean, when you became CEO in 1995, the stock was looked like going back looks like around two dollars. Stocks now over sixty. I mean, that record trounces something like the S and P over that period. Um, we've talked about some of the moves you've made and some of the cultural changes and evolutions, but I'm interested in if you had to distill the primary elements of that success that you've had. What how would you categorize those? Mm-hmm. I would say, well, number one is sort of the, the team of people. You know, it's, it's, I think that my team's a great team. The team below is a great team. And I think our engineers are, are innovative engineers. Um, but I think we've had a consistent strategy that's kind of iterative. And, and it's, you know, this market to our sweet spot is designed to constantly look at the business. If you think of our business as a bell curve, which we draw on the blackboard all the time, you know, there's the good stuff at one end that we're kind of getting rich on. So like, what are the attributes of that? How can we do more of that? The stuff in the middle and the stuff at the other end, like that we might be, you know, taping dollar bills to every box that goes out the door. You know, what can we do differently? Is there a different design, different material? Do we raise the price or we just stop doing it? So our business has got this iterative process of constantly improving the book of business. And, and, you know, we distill it down to sort of four elements of our strategy, great people, which I've talked about, aimed at the right things, which is this, this market to our speed, speed spot. It's very directed. Let's work on this because this is where we do well. You know, wow our customers with innovation and quality. So we keep our innovative roots. And the last one is get better every day. And this concept of iterating that we constantly have to improve. So no matter what the category is, even if it's shipping supplies, somebody's champion of that. How can we get better at it? So um, we have a simple strategy that has not changed um, and that can weather different you know, we've had lots of recessions. I mean, we've lived through a lot. We can scale the business we need to. We've demonstrated that before. It's a painful, no fun thing to do, but we have the ability to do it. Um, so I think that we have a consistent strategy and I think we have great people. And I think one of the reasons we have great people is our culture. I'm personally predisposed to management teams and companies that have the willingness to suffer, which is willingness to make uh, long-term investments um, at the expense of kind of short-term profitability. I'm interested in some examples of where this company has, you know, clearly been had a willingness to suffer short-term pain for long-term gain and, and how that's paid off. Anything come to mind? Oh, I can give you lots of examples. Um, all right. So after having done 11 acquisitions, we found ourselves with like 13 factories, some close to each other and, and just too many. And so we basically kind of, this is around 2016, called timeout and said, hey, we're going to do consolidation on the West Coast, one in the Midwest and one in the Northeast. And we're going to get our platform in order. And by the way, since we're doing all this, we're going to change our ERP system at the same time. It's almost like we're going to pull into the pit. And so to do that as a public company takes a, a strong board. You know, that's willing to say this is the right thing for the company to, to, to call timeout for our, uh, 
basically almost two years um, where you're going you're gonna to endure pain to position the company to succeed. And it was a great thing to do. Um, you know, consolidations are not easy and we make mistakes along the way, but we pulled off all three. Um, we got the new ERP system. And, and when we came out of it, we were just on a tremendous trajectory going straight up. You know, COVID interrupted it, but the platform is still there. Um, and Mexico is another example. You know, Mexico, if you're going to endure, you know, a year or two of losses to start up a plant, you know, some people would rather buy somebody and pay the enormous premium. But, you know, we're going to do the right thing. You know, we don't run the business quarter by quarter. Um, and I think that that consolidation call and timeout um, was a bold move. Um, and it worked. And I, we explained it to our shareholders, but it doesn't mean some of them aren't going to run away. Um, but we did do it. Going back to that consolidation that you did, I'm interested how you got employee buy-in because I mean, it's not just your shareholders that care, but our employees are like, wow, not only do we have to do all this work, but you know, <laughs> our equity comp, you know, may not be worth as much as it was, or, or we get a two-year pause on that. How did you get employee buy-in and, and, and was it, was it so obvious that it was unanimous or did it take some convincing of, of people to, to get them on board? Um, with something as painful as a consolidation, you know, it's, it, it, this is what we are doing. You know, um, it's an unfortunate, painful decision. Sometimes plants were 28 miles apart and it was kind of obvious, but sometimes they were three hours apart and a lot of people, you know, when to get displaced. Um, but when you make an unpopular decision, you know, you got to see it through. Um, so we had conviction at the beginning at the management team level that this was the right thing to do. We knew we'd lose some employees. We knew we'd lose some customers but we knew we'd emerge a stronger company. Um, it's kind of the prune and plant kind of concept. Um, so you can't waver once you decide this is, this is what we're doing. We've got good reason to do it. Um, and then you go. You mentioned a couple of situations in which you've um, made long-term investments at the expense of short-term profitability. Looking back, are there any opportunities or areas where you wish you had taken bigger swings or you wish you'd been willing to suffer more um, for the long-term gain? Uh, there's a lot of things I do differently. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, two come to mind. So one would be our molded fiber business. Um, if I had to do all over again, I would have spent the money and hired a high level president like I've done now invested in guys and given him this business and, and let him or her run with it. Um, because I don't think we gave it the attention that it needed. And I don't think it, it necessarily reached its potential. It became less and less strategic. And, um, and I, so that would have been a good decision. The second one from a, a strategic standpoint, we're in the orthopedic space. We mold foam that holds the, the knee or hip implants and, um, Outside of every one of them is a vacuum form blister. And so we made a strategic, you know, initiative way back when to get into that. And so we, you know, knocked on the doors of the logical guys and said, you know, we'd like to buy you and this is why. And, you know, they sort of said, no, thank you. We're not for sale. And, you know, we didn't have enough tenacity, either hiring a third party or paying whatever it takes because it was a good strategic decision. So that, that market grew and quite a few, few people were successful. Um, and if we had been, you know, more aggressive, uh, taking a bigger risk, we would have been in that business and we would have bought the best of the best, even if we had to pay up for it. And uh, we didn't. So that was a lost opportunity, too. I mean, 
there's, there's a bunch, you know, stuff comes across our desk that, you know, it's like a stock investment you wish you bought or a house you wish you bought. So there's lots. <laughs> Irrespective of, uh, you know, a couple of errors of omission, which all investors make at times, you know, this, this company has been very successful over, over the last decade or so, you know, and I see managing success can be a challenge as well. How do you deal with, you know, rising expectations of your various stakeholders, including employees? Is that is that a different thing to manage versus, you know, whatever, turning around a fixer upper? I mean, the, the toughest thing is, is when you get, you know, brand new shareholders at today's stock price, you know, so um, <laughs> you get no credit for anything you've ever done before. It all starts over. And so that's a natural process. Um, you know, I think of our company in longer term you know, segments, you know, I, I look back like 20 years. And so, you know, my team's kind of been together 20 years, 20 years ago was the end of a, a very difficult time, you know, after 9-11, sort of 01, 02, our stock kind of hit a, a very low point after that. And, you know, we've had this trajectory since where, you know, it's, it's far greater than the whole of our, my team's career. You know, that one is going to be like, you know, if we get the stock to 75, which we will, I don't know how long it'll take us, that will be a hundred X of that investment, you know, in that 20 something years. So that's super exciting. Um, so we, we try to, we try to win. We try to create wealth for our shareholders and for our employees and um, we're competitive and, you know, we try to have fun doing it. It's not always fun, um, but we have a consistency to our methodology um, and, I, and it's, it's able to weather different, you know, because we have this market to our sweet spot. If the sweet spot moves, like the puck moves, like we move with it, like we just change. So if, if automotive is no longer the, where the opportunities are, we'll just put our team over here. And so we adapt um, and we have a platform that is adaptable. Especially in a world today where, you know, you can found a company in Silicon Valley and be a billionaire in a few mm. years and, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever, everyone's making a thousand X. I mean, I think, it's amazing. I think people think that a stock going up 20Xs or, or 30X is something pedestrian. But honestly, most businesses don't appreciate intrinsic value like overnight, right? It just takes a long time. So I, I feel like your story is a story of patience. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about like how, you know, how uh, UFPT is, is a story of patience and, and the, the, how hard it is to really compound over a long period of time. It is. I mean, we are a disciplined company. And, and, and sometimes when we go a long period of time without an acquisition, you know, people get antsy, you know, because our approach is too disciplined. And, you know, they don't know the one that went all the way down to the last minute that we walked when we found something we didn't like in due diligence. They don't see that. Um, but we have been disciplined in our approach. You know, we've never sort of over levered the company. Um, we've, we've, we've taken a conservative approach, you know, maybe it's a boring company to say it doesn't grow like a, a biotech, but it, you know, it's like, it's, it does have a consistency to it. And I think that if shareholders, you know, want to buy something and just put it in the drawer and not think about it for a while, they don't have to worry too much about our company is what it comes down to. Um, it's not a high risk bet. I don't think. And despite the success, this company's remained a little bit under the radar. Um, and, and I'm wondering if that's something that you think about or care about, like you don't do public conference calls. I mean, that's, you know, no, neither, neither does Buffett, right? So clearly there are other people who don't do that. But I'm just, I'm interested in terms of like some companies really care about liquidity. Oh, our stock doesn't trade. And maybe if our stock's traded, we could find other investors. Mm -hmm. How have you thought about kind of just building a company um, versus like whatever, making your stock more attractive? Mm. 
So we've evolved in this category. So a couple of years ago, um, you know, we hired an outside advisor, this company, three-part advisors, who started introducing us to some shareholders on some non-deal roadshows. They, they host conferences. We did three of their conferences a year. You know, we worked to get additional coverage. We just added Sedotis, a coverage recently. We were at Sedotis. I was at Sedotis conference two days ago. So we are spending more time on it. Um, I wouldn't say it's, it's aimed at driving the stock price up, but I do want to drive up liquidity. And, and the reason I, I think liquidity is important is because there are investors who say to me, hey, our model requires us to be able to get in in 30 days and get out in 30 days. And so it's math on how much we can invest. And so you got to get your liquidity up. And so that resonates with me. Um, you know, we mostly put our head down and try to run the business, but we need to have a, a stock that people can get in and out of when they want to. So you'll see us continuing to put work into that. You know, whether we do quarterly conference calls, we once did them. We didn't get a lot of value out of them. And we thought it was better to go talk to customers or potential acquisitions. Uh, we do get value out of the conferences. We do get value out of the non-deal roadshows. Um, but if we get enough interest, we'd, we'd start them again. I mean, we want to have our story known, but we need to balance how much time we spend on that versus customers and, and acquisitions. And do you think there's any benefit from you know not being having whatever 15 sell-side analysts covering you and and you know, just being you know, in the news all the time. Is, do you think there's a benefit from being insulated from that typical short-term Wall Street pressure that I think a lot of companies, I mean, there's so many of our companies are, you know, to some extent managing expectations intra-quarter. They are, you know, worried about next quarter's EPS, not because it means anything for the long run, but because there are a lot of other people that care about it. Do you think there's any benefit to, is, is that a benefit of kind of being under the radar, do you think? Um, I never thought about that till you said it, but probably, you know, our, our CFO is probably less distracted than their CFOs. He's probably to focus on, on deals and whatever more. Um, so yeah, if, if you don't have to put as much time into analyst calls and, and whatever else, I, you know, there's a value. Um, I have never lived that life of 15 analysts. I don't really know, but it makes sense what you say. So I think anyone coming into the, to the stock today or looking at this company today, is um, you know can look at the past success and say, wow, these guys have you know really done it. But what are the over the next call it five years? What are three or four things you absolutely have to get right to you know to continue the trajectory and to get to whatever seventy five plus like you said you know, that that would make us a hundred bagger? What are three or four things you absolutely have to get right? Uh, we have to get this low cost country thing right. You know, we have to sort of migrate from a national company to an international company, and we have to do it without fumbling. Um, we have to do some scale acquisitions that continue to, to advance us as a company, and we have to attract some, some great talent along the way. And where we haven't really talked about aerospace, but you guys have been working to get more in that business. Obviously, aerospace is not a fun place to be at the very moment, but over the long run, you would expect that you know, Boeing and Airbus and the world will start, you know, f working again. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Where where are you in that? What is the opportunity there? You know, um, how are you thinking about aerospace going forward? Um, we combine aerospace with defense and it's aerospace and defense. And right now for us, defense is the exciting part of that, that duo. And so we're doing a lot of work with the U.S. military, particularly in cases. Um, so they want a case for everything. And so you know, if there's a tank, there's a case that holds a toolkit, there's a case that holds a computer, you know. And so we just got a, a large 10-year contract from the military to do um, ballistic panels that go into attack helicopters. 
and so you know that's a, the size of your desk kind of case. It's difficult to do. You need specialized equipment, um, and so that's a good repeatable high margin. Not a lot of people can do it. You know, book it and go. We we haven't focused too much on aerospace for the last little bit because it's been a very distracted market, as you know. Um, we do think there's opportunity there. You know, we spend a lot of time, effort, and money to get qualified with Boeing and to get into their system and have their software and everything. And we're on their bid list for stuff that's in our wheelhouse, but there's not a lot going on there right now. So it's more the defense side that's exciting for us. And you talked about three industries that were unlikely to get offshore, auto, defense, and aerospace, and medical. Are there other end markets that fit that criteria that, you know, that you could think about moving into either through M&A or some kind of greenfield? I mean, is there, are there, yeah, what else, what else could fit within that, um, mm. that not likely to be offshored uh, rubric? Yeah, we're not looking at that now because we're more into to, to further narrowing and further focusing on the medical side. So we're more looking at specific medical segments, like which segments are the best fit. You know, we're really taking a big bet in robotic surgery, big bet in infection prevention, uh, bet in um, negative pressure wound therapy, wound therapy in general, orthopedics. So we're more into segments within medical and finding the next segment as opposed to finding a brand new market. Um, it doesn't mean we won't pivot someday and, and look at that, but right this minute, um, that's not on my focus list. Switching topics for a minute, I don't think any conversation with a public company CEO um, would be complete without mentioning the letters ESG. I'm interested if there's any ways in which the company ha has to evolve or change to meet the expectation of various stakeholders who are focused mm -hmm. on ESG or these things that companies have been focused on for years. And it's really just about communicating with your stakeholders better. Right. Well, no, we are spending time, effort, and resources on it like everybody else. You know, we have a committee. We have our, our general counsel who's also head of HR who's sort of leading this charge and, and trying to get us better at it. Um, you know, the director, our last director meeting focused on director diversity. You know, we already have two female directors, but we don't have one from an underrepresented group. Um, and so we've vetted some candidates, and their decision was, uh, I mean, I forget the quote. It was, let's move with a sense of pace, but not a sense of urgency and let's get it right. Like we're not gonna run out and find the first you know, person that, that fits the minority bill if they're not gonna help our company. So we are paying attention to it. Um, it is important, but it's it's not the first priority in the board meeting, but it's it's on the docket. And as you think about um, you know, leaving this company in the hands of somebody who um, you know, can, can take it even further, what would you like the legacy, your legacy to be that that person will be building off of? But what kind of is it either values or operational metrics? Like what, what kind of, what would you like to leave the company with? Um, I would like to think that I was a custodian of the values created by the people before me and that I kept them up and that they would. I, I was not the founder of the values, but I was a custodian. And I think I did a reasonable job of, of keeping their vision intact. Um, you know, we worked hard and the guys that are going to take over, the guys that did it with me to transition the company, you know, from a more industrial company into a more medically focused, specialized company. And, um, and so those guys deserve, the guys that are taking over deserve the credit as well. But I, I'd like them to take over with the next couple of years, you know, in the books, like, you know, they don't have to worry about tomorrow. Like the, the decisions we made today are going to make sure the next few years are great years. So we're doing some smart things now that I think will pave the way for a nice period of prosperity. Um, and I, I would like to leave somebody with the wind at their back as opposed to a storm brewing. 
because um, that's the way I would have. I mean, I came into a storm brewing. You know, the the company was in trouble. We were in bank workout, and you know, it's tough um, losing money. And so when I started, it was it was not a fun time. And so I'd rather leave things running well for the next guy, I guess. And one way to do that is to have durable businesses that have some kind of moat around them. You know, and this is a podcast called Compounders, and you know, moats are synonymous with compounders. I'm interested um, where you see moats in your business, and and how do you think about defending and widening those moats over time? Mm. So we spend a lot of time on this. Our kind of philosophy is we want to see is there is, an, is there an opportunity. Number two, can we take advantage of it? And number three, can we keep it? You know, back to our scar tissue about inventing good stuff and going on. So. You know, we have, we work hard on various countries. I'd say one of the keys is our material partnerships. So, you know, the, the two biggest things we buy really, crosslink foams and reticulated urine things, we've partnered up with people and have exclusives the last between three and five years. Um, you know, with, with Zote foams, 100% of their medical grades are with us. And with FXI, dozens of grades are with us. And so you can't just swoop in and steal our business without dealing with the guys that have already partnered up with us. Um, number two, our engineers, I mean, we've got 90 plus people on this team that many of whom are homegrown. We have half a dozen new interns every year and the best get hired. And so you can't just sweep in and, and hire somebody out of college and do what we do. Um, next would be our custom tooling equipment. So we build equipment. So if you're going to steal our job, you can't go to an equipment show and buy the machine. You got to design it. So, you know, we also have some IP. I don't have a personal great history of IP helping me. Um, if we have a patent, it tends to make our customers mad that there's, there's not equal competition. So even if we have them, it's almost like we have to keep it a secret. You know, if we have anyway, so we do have lots of patents and we still pursue patents, but it's not our, it's not our glue. It's just one cog in the wheel of our glue. Um, so I think we have a lot of different layers of barriers to entry or moats as you call them. And we're constantly working on bulletproofing things. Um, so that's, that's a handful of them anyway. And in an environment where there are rising costs just about everywhere within your P and L, um, you know the the true sign of a moat is a, the business, the ability to pass along pricing or raise prices. How have you found that so far as you're as you're thinking about maintaining margins as costs are rising? You know where are you seeing um, opportunities to take pricing? Yeah, so for our big customers, they're usually under contract and there are material pastures, so it happens systematically. But for the rest of them. Um, it's incumbent upon us to, to keep it going. And so prices have been rising so quickly that we're only partway through the process of, of catching up on price increases. We're going through a comprehensive review again, and we're probably about halfway through it. And so we have, we've passed on some price, and we've already absorbed some of the pain, and now we're passing on the price increase. In general, I'd say historically, we've been quite good at it. It's probably hardest to do in the automotive space, but you can do it. Um, you get threatened and whatever else, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. If the materials went up, they can either buy your product or not. So it's a difficult time right now in supply chain. There's not a, enough materials. And so, you know, we just have to be really good at, at passing on the prices and, and strategically selling our value. So price increase is an important part of our strategy. You talked about three or four things um, that, that you have to get right over the next few years, but I'm interested in what you're most excited about. Like what, you know, I, I, you guys have a lot of different initiatives. You're you're starting up in Mexico. You've got you know kind of a latent uh, aerospace opportunity that eventually bounce back. But what personally, you know, gets you out of bed every morning? Like this is this is an exciting path for us. Yeah, I mean it's difficult. 
because we're a public company, obviously. But I mean, I'm most excited about our ability to continue to deliver um, on the acquisition side of our growth strategy. And I think that the work we have done over the last couple of years has uncovered some opportunities that, you know, if we vet them and if we're successful, will make us a much better company. Um, I'm excited about our product development business, the front end of our business that we used to give away in order to get manufacturing that we now sell for. And that business is growing rapidly. You know, it's growing so fast, we're worried about staffing it. You know, it's, you know, I think it grew 50 plus percent last year. So, you know, we're getting paid up front to develop with our customers. It, it, it cements our relationship with them. We make money at it. We learn when we do it and we get business. It's, it's a super exciting part of our business model. So I would say those two things. I'm excited to, to grow internationally and to grow up as a company and to take the next step. Um, it may take some time to, to get that done, but we're sort of committed to getting it done. Um, so I think we're at an exciting time. I mean, we have a strong balance sheet. We've got some exciting stuff we're looking at. We've got some new team members that are teaching us some new things. You know, we got to weather, like everybody else, a challenging direct labor market and challenging supply chain. But, you know, the sun will come out again, and I think we'll be in a good place when it does. And a quick question on the M&A side, since you mentioned it, how do you how do you avoid getting into auctions and you know, there's all this private equity money sloshing around? How do you over how do you avoid overpaying in an environment like that? Uh, by not participating in auctions, basically, you know, um, you know, we go out and find companies that we think are a good fit, and we start a dating process that sometimes takes years, and kind of convince them that we're the right company when they're ready. Um, and so we try to buy companies that are never marketed for sale. Now, very often they'll hire an advisor to test our price and stuff like that, but there'll never be a book put out on these companies. Um, and usually when the book is put out, it means we're going to lose, um, because there's always some private equity firm that's dying to put their money to work. And they, we see people overpay all the time. And then we see them unhappy two years later. I mean, there's lots and lots of deals where the private equity guys bought in our space and are not happy more than the reverse. And in theory, that's an opportunity for you to, to, to pick yeah, up those assets at a later date. If they blow it out, but they can be disruptive in the market while they try to fix it, you know? And yeah, I can't think of very many deals that were put out through a book that we were successful. One comes to mind, but generally if somebody's going to go to a Piper Jaffrey or whoever and professionally market, and those guys are really good at extracting top dollar and it's usually not us. Well, Jeff, we've covered a lot here. Um, I think we're going to close with our favorite question. Um, and we've talked about a number of aspects of this company that, that may be underappreciated. But if you had to categorize, you know, what do you think people miss most in, about this company or, or don't quite understand about it? Um, I mean, unfortunately, some things that are confusing, like our GIX code has kind of got a, us placed in the wrong category. It doesn't show us a medical SIC code's correct, but so sometimes investors show up saying, uh, you know, thinking we're a packaging or paper packaging company. So we will get that fixed. You know, we've been talking to those guys. But I think once they understand our company, you know, what I think is misunderstood is the fact that we have this platform, this competitive advantage. You know, we have the material partnerships. We have this engineering team. We have this network of plants that are, you know, all the ISO standards for medical we have this great customer list where we have 24 of the top 28 medical device customers already. And we have a strategy to kind of take advantage of it. And once we do take advantage of, of the opportunity, we have a strategy to keep it. So I think we have a platform that gives us a competitive advantage um, that most people don't get that we have all the different pieces put together. Um, 
it's hard to explain basically to, to somebody in a short meeting, you know, why we're going to win uh, and why we have something special. Well, as a shareholder, um, we're interested in seeing what that looks like over the next three to five years. Um, and, and hopefully this podcast allows you to get your story out to people who might not be familiar with it. So Jeff, I mean, this has been incredible. We talked about, I mean, I, I, you know, had to pull questions off of, you know, out of the back of my mind because we covered so much, but, uh, thank you so much for doing this. this thank been you, great. man. Yeah, it's great. Enjoyed it. Take care. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.